Welcome to the Outsider Theory Podcast, where we explore the mutations of theories outside of the authorized spaces of intellectual life, as well as the ever-alluring figure of the outsider. If you're interested in this project, please subscribe to the podcast and follow my work at OutsiderTheory.com and at OutsiderTheory on Twitter. All right, I'm here with Oliver Bateman, who is a writer who covers a great variety of of topics. Off the top of my head, I would mention wrestling, for one thing, and the general landscape of the take economy online as as sort of two major beats of his. Anything else you would want to add to that? Yeah, yeah, I would say I would say muscle uh, wrestling uh, bodies, uh, you know, growing out of like the academic obsession with embodiment and these sort of things. I kind of built a writing career out of that among. But again, it's a it's a, you know, wealth of different topics. uh, But we're, we're here for one thing specifically. Yes, that's right. So um, we are here to talk about the phenomenon of the contrarian, which is a somewhat spectral figure and a sort of open question perhaps is whether contrarians truly exist or whether they are largely a kind of um, bogeyman summoned up by others. And, you know, there are a whole variety of terms, one of which Oliver has also written about, which is grifter, right, which function primarily as accusations. And so a contrarian is often kind of in that, in that category. But we'll see, we'll see whether, it, whether it functions primarily that way or whether it has other, um, other significance. So let's start by just trying to outline this phenomenon, which, you know, we're, we're not going to try to cover it over the course of all of history, the Republic of Letters, whatever. We're just going to focus on the current landscape of takes and sort of social media culture wars and that sort of thing. So let's start by just trying to describe how each of us first started observing this phenomenon of contrarians, both people who perhaps we genuinely perceived as a contrarian in some sense, but also the function of the contrarian as an accusation or as, as something that could be used to dismiss or um, criticize a certain type of, of figure in online spaces. So Oliver, when did you first start observing this and how did it how did it become sort of a, of interest to you i mean uh, jeff in my case i had only had sort of uh, occasional dealings with the online left that had emerged out of 2012 11 13 14 uh, some of which seemed uh, i guess to have its its genesis in occupy and things of that nature but I, I didn't know those people and i wasn't networked with them or anything but occasionally i would uh, come up against uh, something of theirs or uh, they, they might criticize some piece that I, I wrote for vice or something like that or uh, you know back in those days there wasn't a lot of action on on social media 2011 12 13 and, and so on but i i began to watch this this kind of crystallize tail end of the Obama moment, the beginning of the Trump moment. It seemed like a sort of kind of, uh, uh, ever-changing, but but seemingly agreed upon left consensus was occurring on uh, involving what, what people called the discourse, which I assume, or I, I, I sort of conceive of as just 
what the label that people put on online posting back and forth uh, with, with these kind of sort of sophomoric often uh, takes on, on, you know, one or two academics works uh, combined with, you know, reusing catchphrases here and there. And I noticed that as the years went on um, there emerged a way of, I guess you could say preserving the integrity of the discourse that by which I mean this interactive interwoven form of communication, uh, a way of preserving this by means of occasionally expelling, turning upon uh, or booting people out. You know, there, there, there first I initially noted that it kind of found uh kind of found unity around, for example, like telling jokes about Arthur Chu or Sebastian Gorka or something like that. Right. That was literally what launched, I, I believe the, the left podcast revolution, like the early Chapo, in addition to being recorded, I think over Google Hangouts or something like that, that's kind of been memory hold, but it, it, it focused very much on those characters and uh, it, and then time passed and it, it seemed like as, as those kind of characters ran their, their course. I mean, I, I don't know if people know or care about Arthur Chu, the, the Jeopardy champion and anti toxic nerd entitlement uh, fellow. Uh, he did say yeah. something recently about putting bullets in Nazis brains that they're smooth or right. something like, but anyway, I don't, I don't care, but there was that form of this. And then there was also this form of uh, perhaps one of their quasi friends or one of the quasi friends of this kind of, this kind of unified form of uh, communication and, and sharing online would say something uh, that, that wasn't quite, it wasn't quite, it just didn't fit within the parameters and which were sometimes hard. They weren't like posted anywhere, but it didn't fit within the parameters. It was a little suspect. It was a little strange. Uh, and it was at that point, Jeff, that you, uh, your article, which I'm sure you'll have uh, linked during the programming notes or something, it, you, you kind of come in with an understanding or an explanation of why you know, 2016, 17, 18, hunting down and exposing these people who were within the discursive community, but now have run afoul of it, have to be periodically purged or sacrificed, as it were. This, this is, and you know, like you, most of the people listening would probably hear the words contrarian and think, oh, you know, it's just a guy that's like, if I say the Browns are going to win, he'll say they're going to lose. But we're, we're using the term very specifically here because it was, it's used specifically online to, uh, to refer to these individuals who uh, run afoul of, of the discursive, but you know, un, unenumerated unity of these, uh, these communities. So I, I, I found it really fascinating when you, you explored, uh, and we'll talk about here, the, the sort of ritual function of this and the sort of community building function of this kind of sacrificing or, or scapegoating. Right. Yeah. So I think it's, you know, to me, it's partly just a a sort of flip side of a phenomenon that's very well known, I would say, which is the way that orthodoxies have congealed and have just become much more rigid and um, much more unforgiving in, in recent times. And the way that the, uh, the platforms that, you know, a great deal of kind of opinion is sort of tested out and, um, and developed and, and the sort of, acceptable opinions are established and so on that that a lot of that is happening on these platforms and thus 
um, that that's kind of a large part of where that those orthodoxies, those harsher, more rigid orthodoxies are formed. And so I don't know, I, I definitely, um, in terms of my own observations, what I would say is, on one hand, when I first started spending time on um, these platforms, you know, I, 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 I'm primarily talking about Twitter here. I've definitely observed comparable phenomena on other platforms. And um, I've also heard other people who are more familiar with those platforms talk about them, but um, I'm essentially talking about Twitter here, you know, and, and a lot of this stuff is very well known. You know, you had Mark Fisher's Vampire's Castle essay and, you know, it, it was very well, well known to anybody who was observing how intense these patterns of kind of mobbing and scapegoating were um, already by the kind of early 2010s, which was really only a few years into the existence of, of social media. And so I started observing this phenomenon. Then uh, did you ever read John Ronson's book about public shaming, Oliver? Yeah, yeah. And initially my, my wife had bought it and I, you know, I, I had thought like, oh, this is a semi-popular book or like, you know, trade press release or something. And it wouldn't be that interesting. And honestly, like when when that developed into a, I think he had an article that developed into a book or a series of articles that developed into that book. Yeah. And when that dropped, I hadn't given much thought to that particular uh, that particular phenomenon at all. I didn't, I'd never been publicly shamed. I'd never. Uh, I'd never paid much attention to people who were, and I didn't really think about the the implications. I mean, that honestly feels uh, th- that book feels like almost as as dated now as like, like something sure. from the 17th century. But uh, I hadn't I hadn't thought about the implications, right, of like, like canceling a, a random worker for a stray tweet or something like that, or or what sort of satisfying function it might it might perform for people at the same time. I never had not thought about that. It was kind of happening around me. And I gave it no thought until that released. And when that did release, I, I will say, honestly, my initial thoughts were something on the order of sucks to be them. I'm just kind of, you know, I was I was pursuing an academic career at, at that time. Right. And I, I think I just kind of I, I kind of tuned out the longer term implications when that book first dropped. And she was all like, you know, carried away and, you know, just felt felt bad. Didn't want to didn't want to be in a position to be publicly shamed or in anything of that nature and i just kind of wrote it off like oh it's just something that a you know popular book that came out i'm gonna gonna pass it over and then it became it, it's become like these these it's it's become like micro cancellations and micro mm-hmm. uh, and micro faster cycles um yeah. more more sort of targets more churn um almost like a recreation in a way and i i had never i had never again totally clueless about the the sort of the sort of progression towards that until i wouldn't say it was too late because i couldn't couldn't stop it or anything but certainly had didn't didn't expect it to grow into the sort of phenomenon it was because i i honestly always thought of twitter as like kind of an ugly interface uh, that would yeah. <laughs> that would that would you know you'd get 15 20 likes on there and there were some people uh at various like little startup magazines and, uh, you know, uh, big newspapers, things on there. And I, I, I didn't see it as something that would draw more people in. And I didn't, I didn't predict the, the sort of like cultural phenomena that would also get more people into that, uh, or, or the related phenomena, uh, involving sort of where the discourse was headed intellectually that would enable or provide the material for more, uh, and, and grounds, I guess you could say, for more cancellations. I, I was totally, 
totally shocked. And, and the contrarian is, is an outgrowth of this uh, as well. He's the figure yeah. in the uh, figure in a group that might end up to be like semi or partially canceled or, or banished um, rather than just someone that like contradicts you in a meeting, which is how I had thought of the uh, thought of the term. No, I, 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 I when you bring that up, but I, I can almost like see it clear as day that I, I just didn't, I, I didn't grapple with the implications. And usually I'm pretty, uh, you know, pretty for, you know, pretty forward thinking when it comes to that. Uh, sort of puzzling out where where these things would go, and this is one phenomenon where where I can say that I, I definitely didn't I definitely didn't see how it would ramify. Yeah, so it's it's interesting what you say about how it's kind of devolved into these more kind of niche versions of the phenomenon. Because if you look at Ronson's examples, um, they're not all Twitter, right? Some of them are. Or face, no, public, and they're um, more public things too. Yeah, they're they're yeah, not they're yeah. not they're also not like I mean the one woman was like a, a worker at a company, right? Like yeah. a, just a yeah. They're 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 not. It's not like you know co-host nine of podcast X or something right. like that. Right. Or Jacobin author B. You know. Yeah. Right. So uh, you know, in that in that phase, you had these kind of spectacular. I mean, the Justine Sacco case. Um, which was basically a, a woman in who worked in PR for some company that, you know, who had um, quite a small number of followers. Uh, and this was, I mean, I don't want to get too sidetracked here, but interestingly, this was connected to Gawker, right? Because it was actually a Gawker writer who somehow randomly came upon her tweet, you know, which only had like, whatever, three likes or something. And and started to spread it to, you know, he had a, ten, you know, 20, 30,000 followers or something. And then it kind of went from there. But I mean, that was an incredible moment because she was actually um, in flight while this tweet trended. Right. And by the time she landed, you know, she had been the subject of like sort of one of the biggest pylons ever up to that date. And um so, you know, things like that, right, which which kind of gets into what I what I talk about in the um, in the piece I wrote about the in-group contrarian illustrate this idea of a kind of collective effervescence, right, that, that these mm-hmm. these moments of kind of collective coming together around this this sort of sacrifice or symbolically sacrificial uh, scapegoating of, a, of an individual, right, where, where you can literally bring together the entire world around this hashtag um, where you're just everybody's hating, you know, millions of people worldwide are hating on this nobody. Right. So, you know, so, I mean, I was pretty interested in that phenomenon when I started observing it. And that was kind of how I actually started digging back into the work of um, Rene Girard, who I'd been interested in at a previous point for totally different reasons. Um, because that's really the, the phenomenon that he's most interested in is this kind of way that these acts of collective violence, in this case, you know, a kind of sublimated violence, right? Because it's, it's all taking place on this digital platform. Um, nevertheless, it is kind of uh, capable of, of creating this, this collective unity, right? And so the, th- the thing I started to notice, so that, that was the thing I was originally interested in observing and kind of wrote some things about that. But then the thing I started to notice, um, as you mentioned, kind of in left spaces, but not, not exclusively, I think there are, there are sort of somewhat parallel phenomena as you can see elsewhere, but definitely in, in left spaces, there was this kind of way that that would be happening all the time. Like even beyond these kind of remarkable moments where 
someone would be spectacularly canceled or sort of expelled from the group. There would also just be this kind of slow grind where you would see certain people and some of them are still around, right? One of them I think of is, is, I mean, I remember like Lee Fong being one of the first that I noticed who, and, you know, he's still around, he's still doing, he's still serving this function, right? But even I remember this like five years ago that he was one of these people who they would kind of trot out and just, you know, point to his bad or, you know, problematic take and, you know, there would be a kind of brief period when everybody was hating on it, right? And so that, it, it started to interest me that there were these, there was this kind of somewhat shifting subgroup of people kind of on the margins of the, the sort of accepted in-group who would constantly be sort of trotted out, right? And would constantly be mentioned just as, I mean, I, you know, I can think of observing various times people just saying, Oh, remember so-and-so, you know, whether it's Lee Fong or somebody else, like remember so-and-so, they really suck, right? Basically tweets that were just like that, right? I mean, I, I've seen zillions of, of tweets of this sort up, um, by now, right? Where the entire function of it is just to remind everybody, here's this person that we all hate and we're still on the same page that we hate this person, right? So there's some function, you know, the the, the sort of spectacular you know, cancellation where you have millions of people seems to be this, um, this process by which a, a collective kind of coalesces in a fleeting way, right? Just around this shared, you know, um, kind of moment of hatred, right? Um, in the sort of 1984 sense, uh, where, where everyone is brought together just by that. But then it, it dissipates, but then when you have a group that that maintains a certain degree of stability, right, in terms of who's in and who's out, it seems as if that group also has this constellation of people who kind of occupy the margins and who can constantly be pointed to as like, there's one of the bad people, like we need to remind ourselves that that person is bad because that's kind of the person who establishes the boundary of the group in some sense. So, so that was, uh, that was pretty much, I, I thought of it in relation to the, the more spectacular cancellations that, that Ronson discusses and, and that, you know, we can think of other examples of. Yeah, the, the big one in the book is that guy that uh, I, I used to just equate him with Malcolm Gladwell, but uh, it's, it's the other one. Uh, it's not that it's not Peretti. That guy founded Buzzfeed. It's uh, the other Jonah. Right. That's the, it. That's it. That's it. That's the dude. Uh, kind of weird plagiarism of some, something. To, it was like when he was writing about Bob Dylan. <laughs> well, well, he got accused of plagiarizing about imagination, like a book about imagination right. or something. Right. Yeah, right. Right. No, because the book was about imagination and creativity or something. It's just. <laughs> yeah. Is he, is he is he back? Now I don't want to take this down a rabbit hole, but any, uh, did he come back from that? that? That was a that was a big deal at the time. It was and, a big uh, deal. Um, I think he did. I think he's come back in a minor way, but not you know hasn't attained the same level of because uh, he was was he a New Yorker staff writer or something? I mean he was he was pretty. Um, Pretty well I'm, I'm sure he had pieces in things like that, you know, like those those articles often become the grist for some type of book that's like, you know, 
popped how things explode or like, you know, peeped how things get seen or something like that. So, yeah, I'm sure he had those, those well, sorts of bylines. Uh, those people did get a few of those people did get nuked over the, the passage of, of time, like Jeffrey Tubin, a guy whose work. Oh, yeah. I, I know primarily because he essentially would do like an annual like explainer liberal update on the Supreme Court book every few years uh, is an example of, I, I guess, a spectacular cancellation uh, that, that happened recently of the sort of and looking back on it in the context of our, our discussion. Now, it's almost a vintage cancellation, even though it happened over over Zoom, which is, is the medium we're talking on now, right. uh, because he was he was canceled utterly vanished instantly and i i haven't really seen that since garrison keeler that was one of the garrison keeler was one of the la and al franken were some of the last of the pre i wouldn't even call them they, they certainly weren't in-group contrarians they were they were just like massively canceled from the big constituencies that they had and they they yeah. kind of bowed out i mean garrison keeler was interesting because he had just written an article about how you know trump was soon going to lose the election and lose everything that he loved and never be uh, they, everyone would laugh at him. And then Garrison Keillor was like nuked like two weeks, two weeks after that. Uh, and that that voice, uh, which I, I do to annoy my wife, uh, you know, <laughs> disappeared from the disappeared from the, the air yeah. forever. And those were the, but Tubin, you know, kind of a throwback in that sense, because he was he was nuked so fast. Um, but it began to it began to narrow after like Garrison Keillor. And I, I, I don't remember the timetable, but I, I remember sort of moving Things moving from, let's say, like a Keeler cancellation for I, I don't even know what he did. I think he groped someone or something. And that mm. yeah, Al, Al Franken, like, kissed somebody too long or something. Uh, I don't I don't. The, he had the creepy photo with the yes, yeah, like hands on the coming to feel the woman up. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think it was like a conservative woman too. Right. Or something like that, yeah. uh, that, that canceled him. But, but at any rate, those, those happened and they were kind of colossal and they sort of spanned the yeah. whole uh, you know, the whole uh, ecosystem of, of the media and, you know, the Trump election in, in 2016 was this one big attempt to cancel this sort of uncancelable figure, you yeah. know, in, in, in cancellation style, like nuke him, get him, get him out of there. He wasn't a contrarian. Uh, obviously, he was this huge force that they kept trying to cancel with scandal after scandal. And he just sort of uh, finally emerged as the, the victor of, of the election. But I think it was after that election might have been a little bit before that I began to notice the picking off or the weaning, uh, uh, you know, uh, the gradual like disappearance of, of certain people. And this is when this is this is when it gets narrow. Right. And I, I noticed it in different worlds. Like so there were but but where it sort of hit first, because it would later hit fitness and it would later hit wrestling and it would later hit some other areas that I cover. But where it seemed to hit first post Trump was there was a lot of cleanup. Uh, in the left, dirtbag uh, and otherwise. Right. I, I remember like a, an account named Lena Del Raytheon uh, on Twitter <laughs> got nuked. Do you remember that? That's some vintage yeah. stuff right there. That's yeah. some real. That's some real throwback stuff. Uh, that you know, Lena. Lena was trans, but I, I remember got canceled because you know they weren't trans presenting and they were actually kind of male and creepy and it was bad. Something like that went down and they disappeared. I remember Sam Chris got new, you know, got canceled within the group, but is still kind of around and writing Freddie DeBoer. These folks started to crop up and sometimes it was, I want to distinguish it here. Sometimes it was bad behavior mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes it was a bad take, a bad opinion, 
And sometimes it was both. And sometimes it was one used to, to justify getting, getting them out of the group for the other, but they started to pop around then really after post Trump had picked up. And it was perhaps because the, the in-group cohesion was so necessary within a faction that had just witnessed this uh, election mm-hmm. um, and really didn't have uh, really didn't have a coherent uh, narrative, it had many potential narratives, but it didn't have a coherent narrative. And so gradually, you know, eliminating these these folks has has the function uh, of building solidarity such as it is solidarity for for you and me and everybody who sort of hangs behind. Yeah. Um, and also potentially closing the ranks around uh, a specific remaining acceptable set of opinions. And that was, so that's, that's why the left I think is, is valuable as we transition from the, the colossal cancellations or the mega cancellations of these people, which would continue to occur. You know, sometimes people would, would, would still get popped along the way to how subcultures and, and communities uh, begin to sort of uh, exercise these, uh, these ghosts from their ranks, you know? Uh, yeah. And in fact, they literally become specters in some cases, they become, they become just sort of voices that are, that are invoked uh, to either haunt or, you know, strike fear into the hearts of, of the remaining people in the communities. But I, I think this, this kind of brings us to exactly the, the, the process you describe as applied to this, this specific group. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I think, right. There are sort of two possibilities as I, as I understand it. One is that basically someone is genuinely cast out in some way and disappear from the scene largely. Um, you know, somebody like Sam Chris is sort of, uh, you know, he, he still has a blog, um, but you know he's he's largely absent um from the the sort of um the left scene as it exists um so then you have people who manage to stick around right and who who kind of and this is you know this is where the other kind of grifter concept comes into it because those people who manage to stick around and make something of a, a career of being a contrarian of some sort, if we, if we want to accept that term, um, are probably the most likely to get called grifters, right? And what's interesting about that to me is that, you know, it's, it's strange, um, you know, and I, <laughs> yeah, I think you've written about this much more clearly than I will be able to say anything about it. But, you know, it's, it's very strange because basically a lot of the people who call them grifters are you know, doing far better in terms of um, institutional support and probably income. So in other words, that they seem to be somehow implying that, that the person has these particular takes or is, is offering these particular opinions simply because that's what's going to pay the bills, which is just a, a totally bizarre position to take <laughs> because, you know, as you've, as you've pointed out, everybody's everybody's hustling right we're all um my quote from your uh you know as as you say in uh, your your uh, essay on grifters uh no one is being grifted when everyone is out there hustling at least no no more than soldiers in a just war are committing first degree murder when they wipe each other's lifelines off the map so you know it's it's a it's a kind of strange denial of the the reality of the the um, economy that they're operating, you know, the, the market that they're operating in. Well, I, um, think, but- I think that that's, that's a big 
point though like there's there's an odd element of like to to the to the acceptable discourse within uh, this particular community that we're discussing here but even some others if there there is an expected way that you are to conduct yourself uh in, in most communities that's informal uh it's sort of informally known yeah. Uh, you know, like, well, like we're all getting paid here to wash the pigs rear ends, but we all go top to bottom. You know, you're not going to everybody that does this is going to go top to bottom. And there's no other way to do it, um, even if it's faster to go bottom to top. You know, if you do it that way, you're just going to be you're just going to be stealing from people. You're, you're obviously just doing it to make money. But we're here doing it the right way. Not right. like that guy up the road who, you know, washes them from bottom to top. And he is uh, he's always you know he's a grifter in other words he's yeah. just taking advantage of of the ignorance of those those farmers that want their pigs washed uh want their pigs washed very quickly you know so it, but this is how it is but with but with sort of opinions about politics like well you know this person uh has uh, has said in some paper somewhere some tweet that we vaguely remember except for like the one obsessive person in our in-group who's like the disciplinarian who saved all the quote-unquote screenshots or receipts uh, for this. Uh, but this person has said somewhere that like, maybe Trump is also, you know, maybe Trump is bad, but he, he, there were a few points of his that have some, some relevance and some resonance for the listeners. Uh, and that's not acceptable. That's obviously uh, an attempt to try to gin up uh, a reactionary market for your work. And, uh, you know, and it, it, it's so crazy, Jeff, that, and the stakes in some cases are, are so low, that if you you know publish in a magazine that's that's funded by one group and not another, uh, and it's a group that's outside the acceptable set of like, well, you didn't publish it in Descent or this one or that one, uh, you published it here, mm -hmm. and uh, you're obviously just trying to. It's a cash grab. It's a cynical cash grab. Why else would you you publish it here? except to grab some cash. You know, if you really wanted to do it right, you'd accept $50 and put it in this, this magazine that has a uh, respect within our in-group, but instead you accepted this, uh, this kingly figure of $300 and put it in this, this uh, magazine that, that might be, uh, that might be read by, uh, by Josh Hawley or something like that. How dare you, you know, you're, you're in this for the, you're in this for the money, obviously. It's a grift. It's, it's a hustle. Meanwhile, you know, the, 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 you know some, some folks are just there to sort of transact in ideas uh, regardless of the source. But that's those people are those people challenge uh, those people challenge the, the in-group solidarity. And they they're, they're transgressive in that that particular sense. And those transgressions can't be allowed yeah. to peel even one or two people off the uh, off the sort of like discursive blob uh yeah. there's sort of just you just can't you can't have them doing that right yeah so right and this you know it, it kind of comes back to this um girardian scapegoat theory in that respect because um basically the idea there is that you know when you have these these groups that need to periodically restabilize themselves and figure out who's in and who's out um you know so so they undertake these these kind of purges in which somebody is selected as a as a victim who can be expelled. So yeah, the the I mean, you bring up this idea of the cooties theory of criticism, um, which I recommend everybody read. I'll I'll link it in the show notes. But um, basically, 
Yeah. So cooties are essentially a kind of contagion or a kind of, um, shall we say, um, a kind of taint, um, a, a kind of, uh, you know, if, if we think of like ritualistic contexts, a kind of ritual uncleanliness, right? And so if you think about how, um, how scapegoats are selected, right? Um, there, you know, this is sort of integrated into these ritual systems where you have, um, you know, ways of deciding who's pure and who isn't. And so, um, you know, the, the kind of the phenomenon you were just describing where there's like a, um, a, a certain association or something like that that's, that's unclean, right? Um, it makes sense that that would be one of the kind of selection criteria, right? That, that essentially if you, if you can be associated with something that's unclean or impure, then that makes you a kind of candidate for um, the, the sacrificial victim who can be purged, right? So, yeah, so I, I think the, the Cooties concept really fits with this because it, and as you said, a kind of transgression, it, it fits with this sort of ritual um, interpretation that I'm proposing where what happens is the group just has to periodically um, select figures who can be expelled um, in order to kind of reconsolidate itself and figure out again, who's in and who's out. And um, yeah, the, the other point I would make there is that, you know, as far as the contrarian goes, the contrarian is interestingly somebody who can um, in some way hold that position rather than, rather than simply um, being expelled the, the, the person who is kind of uh, persistently regarded as a contrarian is the person who manages to avoid complete expulsion or complete um, purging. And so who, who kind of, again, sort of hangs around on the margins and continues to sort of vex the members of the group with their, their sort of dangerous, contagious presence, right? And so... You know, to some extent, some of the, some of these people manage to find a way of of making that position work for them, and and this is, you know, the the, the point that I make in the blog post is that there's sort of a contradictory phenomenon at work here, which is that um, although the pressures of the platform, you know, and of social life more broadly, push one towards this mimetic or imitative tendency where you you're essentially pressured in various ways to to join the group and to conform to the group's expectations there is a certain reward to be gained particularly in the attention economy by differentiating yourself as well and in order to gain that reward you have to have a certain um a certain perseverance and a certain um ability to withstand the kind of opprobrium that's directed at you but if you can do that, then in some way you you can you can kind of hold that position. And so I, I think that the people who are the sort of true contrarians, as they're regarded, tend to some somehow manage to carve out a niche that's that's relatively stable, although it's also constantly um, you know the the potential target of of attacks. So that's I I think pretty much my uh, yeah I mean I, I take I, on all of this. Like things that things that that leap out uh, at me from from all of that and from observing the the process. I mean, like understanding like 
for example, I mean, with a with the concept, uh, for example, like law, which was my, my actual like PhD subject, you know, like law can be understood by there's a variety of theories of sovereignty and so on, but like one that's, that's kind of useful to know or for, for listeners to think about is this idea that uh, like a body of law or, or, or just a, a body, right? Like a body politic, a body discursive, whatever uh, for, for it to sort of exist as, as a, a thing for it to exist as an entity, it's going to exist uh, and it's going to be characterized primarily by you will only know that it exists as a body if there are exclusions, right? If there is, mm-hmm. if there is an untouchable within the body, right? Yeah. Someone who's outside of it as a kind of sovereign or someone that can't, can't yeah. be touched. For example, an uncancelable figure who can ride out controversies, not as a contrarian, but as just someone like, you know, you, you can keep telling them that like Shell Oil is funding your takes, but you're never going to be you're never going to be canceled. You're always going to be on the right side of history, you know? Yeah. And then you're also going to have to have the ritual exclusion, uh, the people that are, that are removed from the body. And then, then it's clear the dimensions of the body. You know, if you're like, like rubbing it, like the blind man and the elephant, you can eventually understand like where the contours of, of the body discursive are in this particular sub community. You see the uh, limits, you know, who, who within is untouchable and who out of it is, is completely excluded. The, the in-group contrarian is almost uh, functionally like the sort of like hermit that lived on the outskirts of, uh, you know, the medieval community or town or the wild man that lived there who would occasionally right. come in to transact business, but whose wildness by virtue of that wildness or that strangeness uh, only serves to, to reaffirm community principles. Uh, but in a way that even if he is you know, regarded skeptically or suspiciously, he is he is either too inconsequential or too essential to the operation of the uh, of the body discursive in this case to be completely annihilated. So, you know, Glenn Greenwald, for example, can function as a, 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 a like a, a like a prime contrarian, like a high high profile contrarian yeah. who is constantly attacked but survives these attacks and then people can occasionally line up with his takes well glenn is usually wrong but Mm -hmm. uh, and they can almost position themselves sort of the way you you could in in a religious conflict you know where uh yeah i'm I'm all for these things but then i'm going to go you know talk to the hermit to learn more about uh, the actual thoughts on the trinity you know this sort of this sort of thing or you know he says a few good things about uh, poverty so i'm gonna i'm gonna talk to the hermit for a bit but yeah i understand he's filthy you know and and unwashed and, and and you know all of these other things that might that might go against him but so someone like that has that. Then there are these like lesser contrarians who are who are almost too too insignificant to cancel, who uh, just kind of float around. Uh, you know, maybe they're anonymous or semi-anonymous. Uh, they they keep cropping back up. Um, there are contrarians who are allowed in almost as a kind of controlled opposition. You know, they're just. <laughs> You, they're contrarians up until the moment that they, they need to sort of sign on to the bigger discursive project of the community. And then they, uh, right. then they're there for, you know, they're voting blue, no matter who or whatever they're being called in for, you know, the cold takes are coming in, uh, coming into the heat. You're going to heat them back up again, have a few hot <laughs> takes uh, and then they can, right. they can sort of trudge back out to the little, uh, the little shithole that they live, <laughs> live in, you know, and in, in that exactly in that, exactly in that sense. So there's a whole, uh, I mean, you, you know, if there was ever a demand for such a thing and I'm not sure that there is, but one could sketch out a whole, uh, sort of a whole theory of all of the different roles fulfilled by these, mm-hmm. these individuals as they, they come and go. Now, I mean, granted people will say, well, this is very 
small slice of, of the world, but you can take this and apply it. For example, uh, when pro wrestling recently had, and I, I don't know how many of the listeners here would know, but it had a hashtag uh, me too movement called speaking out. And mm -hmm. so within like short order, a hundred, 150 people were called out. Uh, some were quickly redeemed and brought back into the fold. A few were completely banned. Um, some have some have sort of just vanished into like independent or trashy backyard wrestling. Uh, mm. Some are there, but there's now we're skeptical or suspicious of them. Exact same process, you know, exact same function. Then like some of the untouchables are uh, people who are like very well established on shows or in podcasts or whatever, just kind of glided through. You know, they're, they're still there. Uh, and so I think that the actual framework, if you if especially now, given that this is how we, we communicate uh, or how people that shape uh, the visible communication of a, a particular uh, particular like segment, how they communicate it's important to understand that, that this is a, a value, this is a, like a valuable, like framework, valuable system, a valuable way of understanding, uh, understanding how this works. And I, I, yeah. there's also the, you know, it also gives employment, although it doesn't usually pay for this, it gives employment to this vast reserve army of these lesser, you know, or, or just smaller uh, account social media figures mm -hmm. who spend all of the days hunting for signs uh, that, that someone isn't following the orthodoxy right. or searching for something from the past. Like maybe they liked the wrong tweet that could be used to cancel them. And it's, that, that's sort of their, their reward. You know, they're not hunting for vampires or anything. Uh, you know, they're, they're hunting for, hunting for signs of, of contrarianism. And I don't, I don't know that anything has empowered this quite as well um, as Twitter has, because it, it literally lets you just patrol people's likes and, uh, you know, yeah. scrutinize their, their work product almost daily. Now I say work product, nobody's being paid to tweet. Yeah. Uh, if they are, they're not getting much. Even drill uh, is only making about two grand a month. And Jeff Chedrick makes about 400 <laughs> for his, their tweet work. So the ceiling on that is quite low, but, then there's this vast army of, of unpaid labor that will police yeah. your boundaries for you whilst, you know, just, just looking for a crumb of attention from those who are untouchable for their, for their, you know, goodness or for their orthodoxy within these circles. They just want, they just want a chance to, uh, to prove and they even it's, it's so ritualized too, that we, we've, you know, you know, I've joked about it, Jeff, that there are even pat phrases that you right. can, if you catch one of these lines, you can signal to the rest of the pack that you found one by saying like, this ain't it chief. Right. Or yeah. maybe rethink this or did somebody hurt you right. or not a good look. Right. Uh, and you can just do this all day. There's no, you, there's no need. It's a prefabricated uh, critique that you can just throw out whenever you spot signs uh, that someone is not following the orthodoxy, which you have almost your finger in the air. You know, you lick your finger and, and put it in the air. You're almost testing because the, the orthodoxy isn't like set at some council anymore or anything. It's, it, it yeah. seems to evolve on an almost daily basis. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, the, so to me, the most interesting thing about this phenomenon perhaps is that, you know, there are plenty of people who appear to regard contrarianism itself and again i'm i'm sort of you know i'm 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 interested in these terms that function primarily as accusations you know that <laughs> that sort of nobody self identifies at but that are instead used as accusations to disqualify 
or in some way expel someone. Um, but, you know, so grifter is like that, right? But um, contrarian is maybe a bit more borderline. Like, I think some people do identify as contrarians and like essentially stake their um, their sort of dignity on being contrarians. And I've, I've known and encountered people like that. But, um, but the fact that it does function as an accusation quite a lot um, and as a way of essentially, you know, trying to initiate this process of expulsion is is fascinating because the people who are um, the people who are promoting that are essentially by saying that are sort of owning up to the fact that they are, as you're saying, uh, police sort of orthodoxy police, right? That they're 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 essentially acknowledging that their function is to stamp out heresy. Right. <laughs> Which, I mean, it's, it's just fascinating to me that, that people, um, by understanding contrarianism as, because, you know, the, the way I think about it is something like this, right. Um, the problem with the contrarian accusation is that it, it would, assi- you know, the, what it means is that you only have a position because it, um, sets you at odds with someone else's position or some other group's position. Right. But the problem is that, particularly today, that's true of any position, right? That everything is, you know, to use the sort of Girardian language is negative mimesis, right? That every everyone is, and this comes up in your um, in your writing, right? Where um, how do we determine like what's, you know, wh- where the take winds are blowing? Well, partly because, you know, in the past four years, whatever Trump said, well, that even if your previous position was the opposite, necessitated that you um, modified it to be in opposition to that, right? So, so in that sense, everybody who was reacting in that way was a contrarian in the sense that their, their takes or their positions were defined in opposition to someone else's, right? So what's strange is that, um, you know, if, if you're, you know, part of the scapegoating here is that you're, you're identifying this particular individual or group who are actually just doing the same thing as you, right? Which is that they're in some way defining what they think in opposition to what someone else or some other group thinks. Um, but you're, you're, you're defining the, the position that they're defining themselves against as essentially a sort of sacred orthodoxy that can't be violated. I mean, I think in mentioning Trump too, you, you sort of hit on why this phenomenon might have accelerated so quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, Trump, by virtue of his kind of his use of Twitter, which was marked by a kind of a unique language that he used and sort of a, a memorable way of expressing himself, uh, you know, kind of a kind of a thoughtful, thoughtful, but crude or just, you know, scattershot, but crude because he posted at such a high volume for a figure of his stature. Um, He ended up forcing, I think, you know, unconsciously, perhaps, because people feel the takes uh, often. They feel all the reactions. Right. They Mm -hmm. feel they feel this even before they they see it or understand it like they 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 feel that the the take winds blow in your heart. They don't blow in your mind, you know, because that's that's where your sense of belonging comes from, uh, your sense of wanting to be loved and liked and so on. But Trump said so much about so many things that if Trump went on and tweeted and he did sometimes like Bernie got robbed, suddenly you kind of had to if you were within a certain part of your community, you would have to think critically about that statement. And and you'd have to say something like this, like, well, it's clear that Trump said that in bad faith. 
And right. actually, I think I understand very well why Bernie lost both times. He failed to incorporate blah, 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 whereas this community includes blah, blah, blah. Thus, uh, I'm going to move on from this critique. And then Trump might say something else that uh, initially you thought was very you thought was useful, like something about maybe like job creation in the U.S. or something like that, or maybe even some pause about unions or whatever. He just said something right. You immediately have to you have to say, hey, it's bad faith. Yeah. You don't even know why. I just have to say it because he's obviously not a believer. Right. So the faith is bad. He's just mouthing the words. This is a religion that that's interior. Uh, it's you know, it's it's in your heart. Uh, so, of course, bad faith is, is important. Um, and then you have to find a way to frame your own position as being opposed to that. And because of the volume of these positions that Trump took, uh, I mean, if you were looking at like a compass, uh, you know, or, or wind, something, to, you know, pointing the direction of the wind, like you had a weather vane up or something like that, uh, it was just, they'd be like spinning in a big circle as, as Trump just kind of fired off tweets at random. Like, yeah. you know, Charles, you know, uh, Trump just said that Nancy Pelosi looks like some kind of embalmed ghoul. I thought that was kind of funny, but wait. Or, you know what I mean? Like from something as simple as that to something, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, very complicated where, you know, Trump might go in hard on Mitt Romney and Lindsey Graham. And then you'd suddenly find yourself having to to formulate a defense of them and or like, a, you know, some kind of like neocon project or something like that or wanting those people back in the fold. I mean, it makes your own takes. And I think, you know, if nothing else, even if it provided value to the people espousing the takes, right, in terms of cloud or advancing their careers uh, and so on, he also made their thoughts schizophrenic and he made them, he made that visible to the part of the world that cares to pay attention. So like I mentioned at the beginning, I, I wasn't really paying attention in the Justine Sacco era. Uh, mm. I wasn't really... I didn't see that as something that, you know, I, I just thought, you know, they were failing to exercise good judgment, caution or something of that. Note. But by the time we reach this point uh, at which, for example, and Trump is just the largest figure, there's other ones, you know, Joe Rogan hosts Bernie. Are both of them bad, actually? Right. You know, are, are they both fash? Um, uh, mm-hmm. You know, I, I, you know, I saw a, uh, a tweet uh, a friend pointed me to a few years ago of uh someone who had no idea who a friend of mine was, but they were like, maybe she's fash, but uh, that statement isn't fash. And then someone else like then to defend and say like, maybe fash, you don't even know who this person is. Uh, And they were like, well, I'm just basing it on what my friend's tweet said about her. Yeah. Yeah. And this is how you end up becoming sort of, sort of Amy Therese, you know, and everyone just assumes, oh, she's just fash out of nothing right out of almost out out of out of, out of absolutely uh, nothing or the, the bones of a tweet but feelings about a tweet right it just ramifies you know uh, rhizomatic growth right for those folks that like uh, for like <laughs> like anti oedipus or something like that you know right. you've got this right. sort of you've got this sort of uh, this going i just i mean it's it's remarkable and i i think that it has the value of it for me is that it has just made very clear to me how disordered and jumbled the act of thinking and sharing thoughts in public has become. I mean, there was always an element of uh, positioning, always an element of maneuvering, always an element of the political in the personal. But uh, in the the, the sort of where I emerged from growing up, there wasn't as much of that artifice, you know, and it Mm -hmm. it was just you sort of, if you just told people what you thought and if they didn't like it, um, you know, they could just go through, you know, like that didn't, didn't matter. Mm -hmm. But if 
with with all of these systems in place and all of these bad figures accelerating the process of trying to once again we have a procedure in modern life that is that is becoming optimized which is simply optimizing self-positioning on a daily basis against the backdrop of a Silicon Valley framework of all things, right? So Silicon Valley frameworks can make, like because of the attention and the notice and the way that people utilize these things, whether it's YouTube or or Twitch or whatever, you know, someone that might've just been able to drink, uh, you know, a 60 ounce uh, beer to impress his buddies is suddenly drinking 600 ounces of beer at a time. And everyone is commenting on it. Some people hate him. Some people love him. He's making money, but he's suddenly become optimized as this phenomenon of chugging, you know, and here you have, you have a platform and Twitter was probably the best, even if so few people are actually active on it. Most people are either sort of lurking or there are nons who are performing some kind of some kind of odd unpaid mercenary function of yeah. some form or another, either trolling or like hall monitoring. I mean, those are the two extremes of you can do as kind of an anon or a nobody. You do one of these two things. Yeah. Um, and and this this has been optimized to such an extent that uh, I often think like. I'm not even halfway through, you know, this book or something like that. Something I've been trying to read for a few years, you know, that, you know, how that happens. Like Jeff, you'll have a book that you've wanted to finish and you're reading other things. Uh, but this stuff, this stuff happens at such like a, a dizzying pace yeah. that while all of those things, while I'm like, you know, 30 pages into like flipping through, uh, flipping through this book or, you know, going back and looking at passages, uh, it feels like a thousand years have passed in the discourse and yet nothing has been advanced, but suddenly five people are gone. Three people are bad. And someone else is like really famous now for leading, uh, leading contrarian hunting and cancellation mobs. And it is, it is, it is genuinely something I could never have conceived of. I, I, somebody was telling me, um, and I, I didn't know this because it was never my type of, my type of, uh, of music, but that, you know, that, that people that kind of cut their teeth in the, in certain scenes, and I, I, you know, people that I, I was never active on any communist or left or anarchist scenes or others, but I have since learned from people that like in the 2000s, there was a lot of preliminary, it wasn't public, but there was a lot of like preliminary uh, in-person or, you know, in-group canceling and ostracizing occurring mm-hmm. within those groups. And some of those figures would actually be the ones that would be emerging to enforce such tight discursive discipline on, say, Twitter. So, like, for example, uh, you know, the Teen Vogue labor correspondent, Kim Kelly, one of uh, my one of the What's Left listeners, the podcast told me, you know, this this person, you know, Twitter name Grim Kelly was actually, you know, someone that cut their teeth uh, covering death metal and in the course of covering death metal sort of, you know, made their rep or made their bones by identifying and uh, attempting to cancel or at least drawing negative publicity to uh, a variety of extremist bands that were in the death metal ranks. And, and so, you know, it's no surprise then that, 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 that Kim Kelly has sort of advanced into a figure that, that is, you know, can partially participate in the uh, implementation of this discipline uh, in, in the just sort of a fully online, me- like general media sense, you know, they came out of that community and other people apparently came out of, you know, anarchist or communist community, you know, these little groups, you know, that might've been the thing in the big city, 
yeah. I saw, I got a taste of it in graduate school when I was getting my PhD, there would be, uh, but I was booted from that circle so quickly um, like within days. And that was always the case with me. I was booted from it so quickly that, that I didn't have time to realize I wasn't even a part of it because I was back, you know, at home doing whatever I wanted to do. Um, the same goes with, um, you know, when I was an assistant professor, uh, I, I immediately did not fit in with the young faculty. Somehow got uh, spent all of my days hanging out with this like uh, this like seventy something fossil uh, from the uh, the Berkeley, uh, the like the late fifties, early sixties Berkeley, uh, and just chatting with him. I was immediately out. And again, that just maybe I'm just like a rube or something. But I I didn't I didn't even realize I, it had happened. It mm-hmm. happened so quickly, but I, it, it was happening in these, these communities. And I was just, I was just, I didn't care because I could go home and, and read or play video games or something or, or work out. None of the, like what I wanted to do didn't, wasn't it like, like removing me from the community meant nothing because I was never in it, yeah. uh, but it was apparently happening. And so apparently like people have like reached out to me and told me, well, that's how it worked in this anarchist community in Seattle. Everybody's canceling each other in 2007. Well, damn, I mean, that's interesting. I didn't realize they were practicing this, you know, because again, to me, uh, I mean, I'm still, still the kid from like, you know, scenery Hill, Pennsylvania, 500 person town. Uh, don't, you know, just, stuff just kind of catches up. Uh, and that's why also I, I, I've written those pieces because I've really struggled or at least tried to, to come to terms from like, uh, you know, a, a different vantage point uh, further away in the observation, you know, almost far enough away that I'm not influencing the observed in any way because they don't, they're not rushing to cancel me because there's nothing of consequence that I do relative to what they do, um, which is a decent position to be in. I have no desire to, to engage or interact with them. Uh, and so I study them and I watch them and I try to determine why they're making the moves that they make or, or how this all, this all connects because it's just it's just utterly alien to the way that I mean, if you have a problem with your, your neighbor's dog or something, you just go up there and uh, knock on his door and tell him, you know, right. like if you don't like somebody, don't don't talk to them. If you if right. you don't uh, like the show, change the station. Yeah. If you don't like the if you don't like the, you know, the answer, ask a different question. I mean, that was always how I, I was raised to look at it. But to, to understand that there was so much there was so much nuance. And I, I don't know if I'd call it brain power, but there's almost like a lot of emotional, emotional intelligence or emotional, um, emotional energy that's that's exhausted in the process of of managing all of this. Like if you could manage this instinctively, but emotionally, I don't think you I don't think you could either. Uh, I, I, you know, I wouldn't label you a contrarian, but I don't, I don't think you could either, but if you were someone who could do this really, really well and sort of, sort of like capture the spirit, right? <laughs> like the, sort of the spirit of, of such a micro age at any given time. Um, that that's like learning that someone is is impressed to me. That's like learning that someone is incredibly good at tying Boy Scout uh, knots, or that like somebody is 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 an excellent stamp collector. And even those things at least have practical uh, kind of applications. You know, you might get some value of a nice a nice stamp collection. Uh, you know, nice old coins or something like that. <laughs> Interesting. But but here, if you're just like really good at that, and you just have this kind of maybe you have like a non monetized but large Twitter following, and I don't. Uh, what must your mind be like? And that's not, I don't say that in a negative way. I'm just like, what must the inner workings of your mind and how you approach your day 
because even though I've described it, I've never been able to get inside, crack open the skull, you know, and sort of get inside and see what they're doing or what they're thinking about, because yeah. I truly don't know. Like, I, I would really <laughs> like to know, uh, but it, it just seems like it would be exhausting. Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't even like to, I mean, it's hard enough. Like, I just like when the cat tells me it's hungry, you know, <laughs> and I feed it and our, our interaction is. Yeah. You know, this other stuff, my God, like maybe that's what politics um, and people say, mm -hmm. oh, you know, do this at work. And certainly in the university uh, you did. And I didn't. I was the worst at it, um, but the worst by by such a large margin, unless I was working with like ancient men. Uh, it didn't work, but you know, in, in like the world of like corporate work, uh, especially very, very like fuddy duddy corporate work, you just deliver, deliver reports and analytics to people's desks. And if it gets there, it gets there. And if you do a good job, it's done. Um, uh, not that I'm praising that life for that world, but it's just, it's certainly like, you know, the work might be pointless or fruitless, but at least it's, it's clear what's going on there. Right. Um, uh, you don't necessarily get promoted by skill there either, but, uh, it's, it's, it's much clearer than this, like the average work day of somebody, even or even in like the water cooler office, not like the virtual one like we have now. Uh, nobody exhausted this much effort in a public school. Right. Or like the, uh, you know, the local uh, the local, uh, you know, accounting office or anything, figuring all this shit out. I don't know how people grew up and have grown up doing this, Jeff. I really don't. Yeah, it's it's wild. Um I mean, the way, part of the way I look at it is um, what does it do to you to be observing? I mean, you know, th this is like a, both a very simple and to me, like pretty fruitful point about, you know, what these platforms do. Like, what does it do to you to go from, you know, I mean, especially now in COVID life, like how many actual people do you observe in a day, right? Very, I mean, in my case, very few. Um, and for the most part, I observe them, you know, I don't like find out what they think or anything like that. Right. I just <laughs> sort of see them walking down the street or something. So what does it do to you to have, um, to be exposed to hundreds or thousands of different people, just like observing them, finding out what they're saying, what they're thinking. I mean, that's, you know, to me, that's kind of the, the basic insight or, or just simple observation that, that initiates kind of my thinking about this, right? Because the idea is partly that, you know, you have to, you have to sort of make judgments about these people, right? Like when I just pass somebody on the street, I don't necessarily have to make any judgment about them, right? But when they're putting their thoughts out there for me to read, um, then I'm sort of being at every moment asked to pass some kind of judgment on them one way or the other. Right. But you, you do, in a way, make no. a judgment on people when you walk on the street. You sure, know, you sure. think, is this person dangerous to me? Is this person yeah, smiling yeah. at yeah, me? We do this in our heads, but we don't realize it. But I think you've hit on we are suddenly using that same level of like sort of like almost almost sort of like instinctive, like like twitch response where we're sort of the platform as such is allowing us to do this with thought like, you know, it used to be that you didn't give somebody a second thought, but now you don't have to give them a first thought yeah. before you react. You just have to have a take. You don't need to have a, you don't need to have something behind it anymore. And that's exactly what it is. It's the equivalent of walking down like a virtual street and stereotyping a thousand things that pass yeah. through your feed because our brains weren't set up to process this much, like to process this much careful thought. 
Right. Like we weren't set up. That is work. Like to sit down with a, like a, a truly difficult text or something is a lot of work. It's, it's time consuming. Right. You, you can't, but, but if you sit and just look at your feed or a timeline, whether regardless of the service, it's just going to be a welter of, of all of this, uh, this stuff and your brain is going to try to sort it. And I think probably human brains have gotten better at sorting it the longer they're on it. And certainly I think the COVID isolation is probably uh, speeding that transition along. Um, So I I think if you do that all day, if you are just endlessly and incessantly uh, stereotyping thought uh, and sort of categorizing it using these heuristics, just a vast, like a vast toolkit of heuristics at this point. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even pat phrases, pat memes, pat jokes, pat sentences, uh, pat influencers, all of this stuff is, is formulaic. Uh, It has to be. And you are just, it's almost like, you know, uh, you have to imagine like, uh, you know, Malcolm McDowell and like clockwork orange, but like, except it's just some dude at home and his eyes are open and it's just a, a feed of all the random names on Twitter. And he's kind of, instead of being like terrified, he's just kind of there. And maybe mm-hmm. he's like sipping, uh, maybe he's like sipping an IPA or something. And this is his whole evening. Right. Uh, like what the fuck? But I mean, this is an experiment. I'm sure somebody somewhere is interested in it or they are, they're, they're learning about it at that level. Like what is going to be the end product of this? Uh, I'm in no, I mean, I have no, I it just, I mean, just like you said, where the transition is underway and, uh, so many people are engaged in it and, and, and contrarian spotting and cancellation spotting is merely part of the, the, like the, all of the like stereotypes and, you know, the, the ritualized stereotyping sorting, we're essentially just sorting with our eyes all day long as the screen, our eyes are rolling across the screen and we're performing ritual sacrifices within seconds where that once might've had some uh, that might've had days of significance, you know, like, like the whole city might have shut down and blood ran through the streets while, you know, the priests uh, sacrificed the, uh, the various ceremonial victims to accomplish some, some goal or another, yeah. you know. But here today, there, there might be 40 people you know who get like kind of sus or based or fash designations and get the boot. Um, and that's just a day in the life, you know. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so one, one – I mean, so yeah, the – the basic way I would see the whole kind of observing and as you're saying, kind of having to make snap judgments. And I, I would say part of it is that, um, you know, the the sort of experience that's at the root of the contrarian hunting in part is, as I, you know, what I argue is that it has to do with, um, you know, there's some kind of fulfillment that's found in a sort of mirroring or um, affirmation that you find in observing other people who, whose thoughts echo yours or in some way affirm them, right. Or who offer some kind of thought that you can jump onto and, you know, make part of yourself. Um, and then there are these figures who kind of, um, negate that process or in some way block it, right. They, they block that kind of fulfillment that, that, um, one wants to achieve from, uh, observing these various figures pass by, right? One wants to find oneself echoed in them or, or, or some kind of um, external affirmation. And then sometimes, you know, people will turn up in your feed who in some way get in the way of that, right? And that's, the, that's part of the experience, that sort of moment of blockage that I would say um, 
that I would say generates this, this kind of um, fury towards the contrarian. But then what's strange about that, and this is like what I think is maybe the funniest thing about all of this, is that this, be- this actually begets this breed of people. And this is what, I mean, Girard actually has a term for this, which is obstacle addicts. That in other words, you, you in some way get addicted to this experience of being, of having your fulfillment blocked. And in some way that actually becomes more appealing in a, in a perverse way. And so what, the, the place you observe this, if, I mean, you brought up Greenwald before, so he's a good example. You know, just look at his replies, right? You have all these people maybe accusing him of being a contrarian. What's hilarious is that those people are the people who are in his, his replies all the time, right? So they've defined themselves partly through the activity of being contrary to whatever Greenwald is saying. And so, you know, they're the ones who are doing the contrarian hunting yet, in every conceivable respect, they themselves are, um, you know, actively playing the part of the contrarian in a sense, because they're, they're defining themselves entirely as oppositional towards this other figure. So I think, you know, the, the way I would like, the, you know, it, the way you find the big league contrarians is through the replies. You've got to look in their replies. And if they're just full of these people who are regular visitors, um, you know, furiously lining up to respond to whatever the latest take is. You know, that's that's a sign you found a sort of top tier so-called contrarian. Yeah, I think that's a great way to to end it. Uh, and yeah. for, uh, I mean, you know, at a certain point, uh, folks, ask yourself uh, if you're listening to this, and for some reason, you know, your your own replies have begun to fill with. <laughs> Endless remarks directed at a single person who hasn't even uh, bothered to block you. Right. Um, the, the nature of that relationship bears further investigation. Yeah, indeed. All right. So a little bit of practical advice to finish things off. All right. Well, I think we can wrap up. Um, so thanks for coming on, Oliver. Appreciate it, Jeff. It pleasure yeah. talking. And uh, I will direct listeners to Oliver's relevant pieces on cooties and grifters and other matters uh, in the notes. So yeah, stay safe out there and uh, don't, you know, don't spend too much time in anyone's replies. That's right. Keep six feet, 15 minutes, uh, in a cumulative uh, 24 hour period. Be, be safe. Uh, you know. All right. Thanks so much.